0: The Athletic. In November 1986, Manchester United hired a 45-year-old Scotsman as their new manager.
1: I mean, you know, it's a marvellous club and the Manchester United players re- realise that responsibility. And I'm sure they do. And if they do, then we have a real good chance.
0: He'll do all right. Once we get got a relationship, I'm sure we'll do very well. It didn't happen overnight, but what followed was an unprecedented period of dominance for the club and more silverware than even his greatest supporters would have predicted. Bruce! Yes!
1: Unbelievable! You strive all your life to, to get a feeling right tonight and I've never seen anything like in my life. It's wonderful. Arsene Wenger's had a, a swipe at Manchester United again today. He's got plenty to say. Maybe next year, he could be in the same situation. And I wonder what his story will be then.
2: It's than it Manchester United score. They always score. Gates with a shot, Sheringham! Beckham oh, into Sheringham, and so sorry sorry. it!
3: I can't believe
1: it, I can't believe it. Football, bloody hell. But they never give in, and that's the
3: winner. It's red in Russia, and Manchester United's joy is
0: unconfined.
1: It seemed unthinkable that anyone would ever, knock Liverpool or their but Fergie made it his mission, he
2: has reeled them in, and now has gone past them.
1: I never thought we could achieve what we achieved of course, but getting the first one opened the doors for us and we had some great teams after that. This was ideal club for me, there's no question about that. This is the only club in the world that can match my what I needed at the time.
4: Five FA Cups, four League Cups, ten Charity Community Shields, one European Cup Winners' Cup, one European Super Cup, two Champions League titles, Intercontinental Cup, One FIFA Club World Cup and 13 Premier League titles. The impossible dream made possible by the greatest British manager ever.
1: I wish the players every success in the future. You know the jersey you're wearing, you know what it means to everyone here. And don't ever let yourself down. I'm going inside for a while. I just want to say thank you once again from all from all the Ferguson family, eleven grandchildren. Thank you,
0: thank you.
4: That's here for Sir Alex Ferguson.
0: Thirty-five years later, and almost a decade after he stepped down as manager, we're here to toast the man who steered Manchester United into the 21st century on a wave of glory. As on the eve of 2022, he celebrates his 80th birthday. Welcome to a very special edition of Talk of the Devils, a Manchester United podcast brought to you by The Athletic. And as you've just heard, we're celebrating the upcoming 80th birthday of Sir Alex Ferguson, the greatest football manager of his generation, undoubtedly, and perhaps of any generation. I'm Ian and here with us today, our usual podcast team of Manchester United correspondent Laurie Whitwell and United We Stand editor and Athletic contributor Andy Mitten, hello to you two. Throughout the next hour or so then we'll be hearing from some of those lucky enough to work in Fergie's inner circle and we'll be joined by a trio of the Athletic's top team of writers, each of whom have picked out an aspect of the great man's life to highlight what made him such an influential figure in British, European and quite frankly, world football. Laurie, what's your favourite Sir Alex Ferguson story? Well, I suppose um, I owe my career a little bit to Sir Alex
5: Ferguson because when I was a kid, going to matches, my dad would take me. And it was such um, an exciting time to be a Manchester United fan that that kind of encouraged me to... I wasn't very good at football, so what's the next best thing? Try and write about it. Um, And, you know, the fact that United had won so many trophies and Sir Alex was such a captivating character really energized that within me trying to be a journalist and ultimately write about football so I feel very fortunate in that regard and then just in terms of the, sort of the, one of the funniest stories you know I'd heard I, I was unfortunate I, I never I think I did one press conference with him maybe when I was a journalist covering the Midlands um but he obviously retired before I you know became a, a professional you know in the The truest sense and um, so the stories that kind of I have are reflected from other people and by doing these articles and and this podcast, Eric Steele is one of the guys that I've spoken to and he he tells a brilliant story all, all the time. Eric is a great guy as Andy knows, but the one that sticks in my mind that he was telling about Sir Alex was when he'd invited the Australian goalkeeping coach over, Tony Franken, um, and he sort of said to Sir Alex, is it okay if he watches training the next day, you know, and then we can go for lunch and kind of, you know, you can tap into a little bit of what we do at, at Carrington. And Ferguson goes, ah, yeah, no problem, all right. Uh, sorry, that's a, an awful Scottish accent. Where's he from? <laughs> this is, I'm trying to replicate how Eric told me the story, you see, and that, that was. I think that was about <laughs> the same kind of tenor that he, he used. Um, anyway, it comes to training, and um tony franken's there on the on the sidelines uh and sir alex stops training who the hell's this basically and and eric's like is well, tony franken is the guy that you said i could no he could be a spy too close get him out of here so fr- sir alex obviously Blime forgotten it. basically that he'd, he'd said he could do this you know he, he did he had so many things going on didn't he fergie and i think one of the things he's credited with is how he kept plates spinning i think brian mcclaire says that you know the the plates that he would spin would be incredible. But he'd forgotten this one aspect of it and the way that Eric describes it is that he got a, a nuclear powered hairdryer thinking that he brought this spy into the into the camp. Um and then obviously when you know Eric goes back to training, all the players are, you know, laughing laughing their heads off about it, Rio Ferdinand in particular, I think. Um but after training, he has lunch with him and Ferguson realizes, you know, the situation and was absolutely golden with him, came over introduced himself, asked him how long he was over for, how the journey was, you know, really wanted to get to know him. Um, So I I don't know if there's an apology in there, but I think that was his way of sort of accepting,
0: yeah, maybe I got this one wrong, Eric. There's contrition, definitely, isn't there? Yeah, I think I can relate to that from Laurie, to be fair, Andy, in terms of being interested in football, being a Manchester United fan growing up and Fergie and all the mystique around it sort of adding to my interest and passion for it. And I think another thing as well, he's made my career easier in the sense that as a young lad, a young journalist at the age of what, 22, 23, going to Sir Alex Ferguson's press conferences were still to this day the scariest experiences of my career. And going to anyone's press conference now, Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, Jose Mourinho, whoever it's been down the years, has been easy in comparison to negotiating um, Ferguson's I used to sit there as a as a young journalist and look at the other, the older lads, uh, the hardened hacks on the newspapers, getting the hair dryers and the dressing downs. And Ferguson used to have this way of coming into a press conference and starting it himself. Forget being asked a question, like every other manager or every other politician, prime minister, president across the world, he started it. He set the tone. He'd lie about his team news usually, and then throw you some sort of of bone of a line that he wanted someone to bite on to, to lead the press conference. And I still remember how scared I felt asking him a question. In fact, the the, the best memory I've got of being at a Sir Alex Ferguson press conference, I didn't even get in there. Um, he used to hold it in the um, academy building at Carrington. And there's a set of very noisy steps up to the mezzanine floor. I opened the door of the front door and he'd started 10 minutes early. I was, I was early, but late. You'd usually get there at least half an hour before. And I remember putting my foot on the first step and thinking, is this really worth going up these steps to enter the press conference late and get the dressing down that I'm likely to get for being late when I get to the top? So I just turned around and went and sat in the car. Brilliant. <laughs> that, that that was sort of the, the, the mood that he set in those. I mean, Andy, you must have some brilliant stories about him.
6: Football bloody hell is probably the culmination. Uh, that quote when Manchester United were, were crowned champions of Europe and to, to put it into... Context: I'd grown up supporting United as a kid in the 70s and 80s, at a time when Manchester United didn't really win anything. Liverpool were the team who won the league titles. United won occasional FA Cups, and Fergie, Fergie changed all that. Fergie made United champions time and time again. I started United We Stand as a kid. I've probably seen the world because of that man. Because he made Manchester United great, I've seen United play in playing what 44, 45 countries. Because he made Manchester United great, and I think history will rightly remember him incredibly well. I interviewed him as as a journalist, but I used to do a paper round and I could hear Old Trafford and did, did, did do my local team and everyone in my family supported United. I was always going to support Manchester United, even if they were a fourth division team. So, for him to take United from what they were when I was a kid to the best team in the world. And I went to Japan to see Manchester United be crowned world champions. And you see him as a journalist. saw some amazing moments and he could be incredibly cutting. One I remember which hasn't really been mentioned in any of the things I've read was in Istanbul in 2012, United played Galatasaray. And one of the Turkish journalists, who was a bit of a big hitter there, he said, uh, Galatasaray knocked you out of the European Cup in uh, 1993. And on your first journey back here, you've been unable to de- defeat Galatasaray once again. And all the other Turkish journalists sort of, ha, 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 yeah, yeah. We've slayed this giant again. And Berg just said, yeah, yeah. And, and since then, you know, we've won. 12 league titles, we've been champions of Europe, Uh, we've been world champions, we've won this many FA Cups, we've done this many League Cups Uh, yourselves? Just fantastic. Just this room full of Turkish journalists in, in an arena famous for its febrile atmosphere. Get back in your place. Don't come here and be big time with me. So yeah, I mean there's so many stories, there are hundreds of stories, and this podcast is is hopefully gonna tell some of the best ones.
5: Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us.
0: Okay, so let's talk about what made Sir Alex Ferguson such a formidable force. Of course, we've heard all about the stories across the years, about the hairdryer, about kicking boots and, of course, the brutal treatment of players who dared to cross him. There's no doubt in his drive to succeed. But it takes more than desire and perhaps the prominence of those stories does him a disservice because, as a former United coach, Tony Strudwick makes clear, he doesn't get enough credit for his vision and innovation.
2: I think what he needs to be credited for is just how innovative he was From a sports science perspective, I don't think, you know, he he didn't set out to be this kind of professor of football, you know, a Arsene Wenger, but both were driven by a a, a relentless pursuit of performance. Wenger, when he came over, introduced stretching and obviously went on on to great success, Arsene. He he was seen as a technocrat, but I think Sir Alex did it in his own kind of way. I mean, when he first came down to Man United, he he introduced a pre-match meal where they didn't they didn't have that beforehand. He was thinking about things that weren't labelled sports science at the time. He was definitely an innovator in his field. And I think that sort of that translated into him looking outside of what the norm was. And, you know, I think when he came down, he introduced what he called the boxes. But I think that's that is, is that is now sort of like spoken about as rondos. But he was doing that, you know, 20, 25, 30 years ago. I think he was doing it at Aberdeen. So he introduced a lot of stuff at Aberdeen to get a competitive edge. You know, after Sir Alex went, and when we went back and looked through the numbers and the figures and the stats, I mean, the way that he managed the squad and the training process collectively with his, with his coaching staff, it was a blueprint for how you prepare a team to win the league and to, to win the Cups every year. He understood the science of winning, what it takes to win the league, what it takes to prepare a team for, well, for four major trophies a year. You know, that was the genius of Sir Alex how he managed that squad and again statistically Manchester United always overperformed in the last 10 minutes of a game hence that's where Fergie time comes from Fergie time wasn't necessarily putting pressure on the referees but it was you know Man United would win from impossible positions so many times you'd either be you know drawing or a goal down and, and, and bang bang you, you know you'd score two two goals in the last 10 minutes of the game
0: Yeah great insight there from Tony who of course was one of the fitness coaches under Sir Alex Ferguson. I'm delighted to say now I can bring in the Athletics' Adam Crafton to this special Talk of the Devils. Adam, thank you for joining us. Uh, You've written a really interesting article on Sir Alex Ferguson in terms of breaking down his greatness. That's probably quite difficult to do, isn't it?
3: It's really difficult to do because every time you think, oh, yeah, it's down to that, that was the reason why he was so great, another reason comes along. And, you know, the more you look into it, obviously... It's because he was brilliant at so many different facets of management um, and of football management. Um, And it was really interesting just listening to that clip with Tony Strudwick, you know, talking about when he was bringing in a pre-match meal, which he actually did in his first job at East Stirlingshire uh, in 1974. And that meal was basically the meal that his wife, Cathy, had made for him as a player, which was Dover soul, toast and honey. Um, And he then gave that to the players at East Stirling pretty much took it into Aberdeen. He was told by the previous manager at Aberdeen, oh, that's not going to go down well. You won't last long giving those players that food. And, they, and you know, I think they won the first game after they'd had that meal, so they stuck with it. Um, and, you know, that's sometimes all you really need for buy-in. And, and as Tony Strudwick said about the boxes or the rondos, you know, I don't think anyone's claiming Ferguson would have invented that training drill, but he was doing that in 1974 at East Sterling. Um, and, you know, his, I think his core principles of training, you know, the idea of if you continually repeat something, it will make you better, won't make you perfect, but it'll make you better, was a pattern throughout um, his management that he also expected from his coaches. You know, when I think when players were maybe moaning a little bit that Carlos Quiroz's sessions were a bit repetitive, Ferguson would speak up for Quiroz and say, he's repetitive because it's going to be so attuned in your head on Saturday, that you'll do it naturally.
0: Um, Rondo's in a Scottish accent, actually. Has a bit of a ring to it. (laughs) Rondo. Yeah, and I saw Laurie smile when you said Dover Soul as well. Not quite crayfish, is it, Laurie?
5: No, no, nothing can quite compare to crayfish. But um, no, Dover Soul was what Tony had said. That was the the pre-match meal that he introduced. And it it seems, you know, he said this repeatedly, Tony. It seems um, almost... You know, not archaic, but, it, you know, this is this is obviously standard practice now, isn't it? You know, pretty much Meal, well, obviously. But Ferguson, we're talking, you know, 30 years ago when football was a vastly different landscape. And he was thinking about different ways to, you know, get marginal gains, really, before they were called marginal gains. Um, and as Adam says, there's so many different aspects to it that he was good at, you know, not least understanding people and having a good memory and and being able to tap into what exactly made people tick that I think he was able to kind of sustain that success year after year after year, right into, you know, he was 72, wasn't he, when he retired. So a hell of a journey. I think he did that
3: stuff. You know,
5: people say, Oh, you know, he went into
3: United and he stopped them drinking. That wasn't about his temper and control. That was about how do I get performances as good as they can be on a Saturday? Um, and then there will be stories about, I don't know, when he's at St Miran he catches the players going to the pub, he gives them a dressing re- dressing down in the dressing room, he throws a bottle of Coke against the wall, and that will be made out to be a story about his temperance. To an extent it is, but it's also about how can I look at all these different things that might be under my control that can maximise performance? So whether that's in the yeah, you know, I think 91, 92, he had Trevor Lear in as a nutritionist in 97, a vision scientist, Gail Stevenson, writes to him and says, you know, I've noticed this thing about the shirts that you're wearing. This could be a factor. She then does research on peripheral vision, which she works on sessions with players about that. Ferguson before then had always thought, well, vision, you know, it's innate. You've either got it or you've not got it. But you listen to it, to experts on it. And they said, well, actually, here's some things that you might be able to do to improve it. And, and look, there was loads of people who would have emailed him over the years with, with bad ideas, that he'd have just said, I'm not interested in that. And he wasn't enthralled to data or statistics, but I think where he saw an opportunity to make his players and team individually better, then that, that he went through. And I suppose another example is, I think he received letters early on about psychology, sports psychologists writing to him saying, "We, you know, I can come in, I can turn this around for you. And he tore them up. And then by the time Steve McLaren was at the club, Steve McClaren actually said, I think you know, I think it might be something we benefit from. And he went with it and had Bill Bezic there. So th- there's a lot of things like that, which we take for granted now, but which he was open-minded enough to say, well, this isn't a threat to my control. It's just a way to actually make you know, make our team better.
0: Yeah, Andy, the, the sort of like package of Ferguson is billed as is quite old school, but the, the more you sort of dig into it, and Adam's article obviously does that, the more sort of a sense of new school as you go along. There's actually a lot of a lot in that really, isn't there? There's a lot of innovation in there for, for someone who's sort of built as, as, like I say, this, this sort of old school manager in in the truest sense.
6: You showed a lot of foresight. There's two names Adam mentioned there, which was Trevor Lee and Bill Bezic. When they both started working for Manchester United, some of the players were like, what's all this about? We don't need this. Neither of them were full-time staff. They were both freelancers who offered their ideas, who were brought in. I can remember a friend of Trevor's saying to me in 1991, you know Trevor Lee, you know Man United, do you? So you'll know what Trevor Lee's doing there. He's sorting the food out. What? They have steak and chips before the game or Dover Soul or what it was. But he, a big point he made was that the biggest change he saw from when he joined United in '86 to when he left United in '13, was the size of that staff. He kept adding and adding. And I don't think there was ever a grand vision as we're going to be at this point in five years. I think he was spurred on by other people such as Arsene Wenger, but also by his own desire. He he, he hired people who were smarter than him in the areas they, they knew best about. And he felt a huge amount of loyalty to those people, maybe to a fault. So when the Glazer takeover went through in 2005, one of his first lines of defense was, my staff are my priority. I've got to look after my staff, and that didn't wash with a lot of fans, but he, he, he genuinely had such a close bond with his staff that went beyond the normal nine to five. He would send Christmas presents from him and Kathy to their children, to their grandchildren, and still does. That happens to, the, to this day. I know stories of him cutting short holidays in the south of France to turn up at the houses of the daughter of the kit man who died. I'm here for you. What can I do for you? And she just lost a dad. And suddenly Sir Alex Ferguson's there. Can I come in? Can I have a cup of tea? So you can judge him as a football manager, which is great. And obviously his statistics stand up there because he won absolutely everything. And as a kid growing up, I just dreamed of seeing Manchester United win the league once in my lifetime. And he shattered that. But also as a person and well, he knew he had enemies and I knew certain journalists who wrote to speak to people about him and they'd ask Fergie's permission and he'd say, no, don't trust that person. Uh, he, he was well aware that he had enemies, but also he did so much good and had so many friends and you can see that now that his life now is, I wouldn't say he's enjoying being a sort of social convener with all of these people, but they found him to be a greater friend post-Manchester United than, than when he was actually managing Manchester United, probably because he's got more time in his hands now.
0: Yeah, in terms of the personal touch, actually, I was going to leave this till a little bit later in the conversation, Adam, but it, it seems a, an apt place to sort of talk about this now, because you mentioned before, uh, and Andy uh, as well, sort of the the little details that he had in him, the, the personal touch, the, the personal relationships that he, that he really valued, uh, and that that's something that is talked about with Sir Alex but it's never the first thing is it but for a lot of people who knew him that is the first thing that they talk about
3: yeah I mean there's there's a great quote in in one of his books I can't remember which one which is the real friend is the one who walks through the door when others are putting on their coats to leave I think that's probably how a lot of players um, felt felt about him at certain times when he really needed them so know david beckham 1998 world cup he's being dropped by glenn hoddle who was the england manager at the time and then told to go and do a press conference at the age of 23 despite being dropped at the world cup and then obviously gets sent off and comes under a lot of heat and ferguson really looks after him the next season and there's a load of stories like that where you know ferguson's understanding of different human beings is really important and i think He he talks about in his sort of younger days as a manager, feeling like he had to do everything, whether it was run the coaching sessions, prepare pre-season, do the the schedules. I think it was Archie Knox who was his assistant at one point just turned around and said, why am I here? Why why am I still here if you're going to do all this? You don't need me. You're running all the sessions and you're not observing. You're not actually watching what's going on. And that's when I think it was when he was at Aberdeen, he just stepped back from a training session. He saw that one of his players was screwing up his eyes when he was passing the ball. And he turned to the the kit man at the time and said, have you noticed that? And they sent them for an eye test and it turned out he needed glasses and it improved his game. I think from sort of there on, people now say, oh, Fergie didn't really do the coaching. He left it to coaches. And probably an element of that was age as he got older, but also an element was, Well, if I stand back, I can see things that I wouldn't see if I'm right in the middle of it. And that was clearly of huge value to him. And as Andy says about, you know, the personal steps that he would make around, you know, gifts for staff. I mean, he still sent Christmas cards to players that played for him until he retired every single year. And that's a lot of players um, to be sending Christmas cards to. And that meant all of those players, kids were running around school saying, I've got a Christmas card from Sir Alex Ferguson. He wrote a lot of letters um, and he wrote to fans that, you know, might have lost someone. And and that's something that's become very normal at clubs now. You see it quite often on social media. But he was doing that without knowing that would go on social media. You know, it was before social media. It wasn't to be public. It was just he saw himself as the head of this big community and he felt he had a responsibility to step in where necessary to help them.
0: Yeah, one of my colleagues actually um, is a a cameraman, uh, and he was doing a press conference with Sir Alex at Carrington a long time ago now. Obviously, when he was manager, but it was a few years even before he stepped away. And he'd it was an early press conference, and he'd driven quite a long way to get there. Uh, He's diabetic, and he'd not had a proper breakfast anyway. Halfway through the press conference, he collapsed. Um, He he was having a hypo. So obviously, in a press conference, the camera operators are at the back. the, the journalists are in front and there's only one person with the press officer usually facing the other way. And that's the manager. So Sir Alex was actually the first person to see Sam fall over. Uh, and he immediately stopped the press conference, went up to the back to check that he was OK, called the security guard over, got him on the phone to the team doctor uh, to make sure that he was going to be all right, asking what he needed to do. Team doctor says he needs some something sugary. Get him a sugary drink. So Sir Alex shouts over to the security guard, "Fetch this man a Lucas aid." Uh, the security guard turns around, and says, "What flavour do you want?" And Sir Alex says, oh, "Any, any, just get him anything." Uh, and and basically w- w- was really lovely. And it just was another example, I guess, adding to add into the ones that you're talking about of that personal torture, A camera operator, we all know about Sir Alex's relationship with the media and general sort of attitude towards. Um, how to use us and things like that, but again, another example of his personal touch. Yeah, another example really of the different sort of assets that Ferguson had, uh, is told here by one of his assistant managers, Steve McLaren. And it turns out he was a bit of a demon with quizzes. You say
7: the European night, have a quiz, you know, staff versus the players, and that was always competitive to the point of nines and forks being thrown across the room. <laughs> and he hated losing that one so he was—he he read everything, he knew history, knew everything about uh, not Scottish history but history, politics in general he was so well read uh, and that came out a lot in the, uh, in the quizzes because we held many on, uh, on European nights when we were away but he answered a good question did he say 1865 painting or something but he got the answer and and through the gaffer were a nightmare. I know, not you know that. Like I
0: got the painting in my dining room. Uh, one of the more random stories I think we're going to hear today, Laurie, that sounded like it came from your interview because I heard you laugh halfway through. Um, uh, yeah, sorry. That's <laughs> all right. Did you fact check that?
5: I did. I went back to the source, uh, to Mr Nicky Butt, and said, is this right that Steve's telling you telling me here? And he said, yeah, spot on. Although he couldn't quite remember the painting, so maybe it wasn't like a big grand masterpiece. I was thinking of some kind of Picasso or something. But... Uh, <laughs> Listen, I think, there's a, I think there's a video clip in there of, of Fergie having a go at Roy Keane and Nicky Butt because they've beaten him in the quiz and he was very competitive. And this is something that Eric Steele also told me about the fact that on the way down, you know, on the train or playing to a European away game, he'd do the times crossword. Um, you know every single time that he had it uh sometimes he'd shout out the questions and he'd want his coaches to be involved and engaged, and they're thinking, can we just not have a nice you know relaxing journey down to wherever we're going down to London or something and he'd you know, asking them questions if they didn't know the questions um then sometimes he'd call up some famous people he had Tony Blair and Gordon Brown on speed dial, I think and <laughs> and he'd give them a buzz and, and see if they knew the answers and, and oftentimes they would. Um, and Eric also tells me a little bit about this, in an iPad, Fergie, uh, where he did, who wants to be a millionaire on? Um, and he'd be, get, he'd be getting excited about the answers and he'd, he'd press it before anyone had a chance to answer them, before they had a chance to sort of ask, a, phone a friend or ask the audience and he'd get it wrong and he'd say, why don't you stop me? And they'd be like, you, you did too quick for us, gaffer. So, but it was very, I think the whole point was to kind of have a, you know, a team ethos about it. And, and both Eric, Tony Strudwick said that they really enjoyed those moments You know, the Friday night before a game, where Sir Alex would have a meal with them, have a glass of red wine, talk about their lives, talk about their family, and it was just a chance to, you know, after the quizzes had finished, to get to know them a little bit better and kind of really cultivate, you know, togetherness that clearly, you know, sustained them throughout a lot of success.
0: Yeah, really nice tales, though. Certainly, Uh, Adam, I I can't let you go. And we can't do a section really on the formidable force of Sir Alex Ferguson without talking about his feuds because there was many of them, famously with managers like Arsene Wenger and Kevin Keegan, famously with the Football Association, um, even the media and broadcasters got it as well. Uh, where, where where do you start with this really? Because this sort of formed such a huge part of his persona as well, didn't it?
3: I think it was everyone. Um, everyone <laughs> and anyone at any stage yeah. could be... You know anyone that could at any stage undermine his quest to be the most successful football team in the country would get it, um, and I think some. You know, there was a story I was told about the two thousand and two three season when United won the league, but they had to chase down Arsenal, um, and Ferguson had nearly retired the year before, and then he changed his mind and decided to stay. And United actually started. The next season quite poorly. They were behind Arsenal and they lost at Main Road against Manchester City 3-1 in the final game at Main Road, Gary Neville's mistake, Sean to scores. And the way it's described to me, in terms of what happened over the next couple of months, was basically a three-month rolling bollocking for everyone. For everyone at that football club, whether you were uh the the Doctor, the sports science, the pro zone man, the the media team, the website team. Cath on reception. Cath on reception. I don't think it would ever be cath on reception to be fair. No, it um, shouldn't be, no. But the players, everyone got a little bit of it and the media got it and the FA got it. And basically he'd just seen that standards had slipped a little bit. He felt standards had slipped a tiny bit and he wanted to grip the situation. And the way to grip that situation was, was by, I suppose the tempo was real. And the fury was real at what was happening, but how he used that as a tool at certain moments clearly had a massive impact. And then he, you know, that was obviously the period as well where he massively revved it up with Arsene Wenger. And I think there was genuinely a period where I think, did they hate each other? I think it's probably best to say they both hated losing. And that manifested in appearing to hate each other at times. It
0: looked um, like hate.
3: It did. It did. Certainly yeah. between the players, they drove the players. To a stage where you know they absolutely hate, hated each other for a while and couldn't bear to lose you know some of the comments when you read them back now you, you read them and you're like wow imagine having a bit of that to cover in 2021 i mean whatever we get now is incredibly small fry compared to that but it got it got towards the end of the season and united were going to arsenal and it had been going back and forth between wenger ferguson wenger ferguson and he's walking up to this press conference. And he's talking to a few different people. And everyone had expected this press conference, the night before United go to Highbury for this crucial ties decider to be you know, a Ferguson classic press conference. He's gonna go after Wenger. He's gonna go big. And he just said to someone as he was going into the press conference, have you ever read John McEnroe's book that must've been out at the time? And the person said, no. I'm not sure why you're bringing that up as we go into an Arsene Wenger press conference, and he just said um, McEnroe wrote that you never lose your temper in a final, despite all of McEnroe's own temper tantrums. Without you know, throughout games, and Ferguson went into this press conference. He had all the newspaper number ones there waiting for this turbocharged copy, and he was just sweetness for 20 minutes, half an hour. Didn't rev it up because he, as far as he was concerned, he'd driven Arsenal to the point he wanted to drive them and he was in control of the situation. The next night they draw 2-2 and he goes over to the fans, gives them a fist pump, and you know they pretty much got as close to where they needed to be in terms of getting their title back. And obviously that's one of those stories that benefits from hindsight in terms of how that season played out, but clearly there was a difference with him between how he used those feuds. It, what, he, was ne- he was never really out of control with those feuds. It was always a means of maintaining control, but I'm sure Andy's got some stories of where he was just completely out of control at times and pretty terrifying to be around. And you'd probably nowadays look at HR departments and say, this isn't really <laughs> how you treat, it. you know, it's not how you treat people you can't treat people at
6: different organizations and undermine them like this every single day, um, but he could. He usually was right. He wasn't always right. And sometimes when he was wrong, He'd sort of admit it two months later with a, a cup of tea or, or a handshake. But sometimes he was just wrong. I remember when United played in Rio in January 2000 and the players went for a walk-up to Christ the Redeemer statue. And as a United fan there, just minding his own business, taking pictures. And Fergie got it into his head that he was a, a national journalist who was following his plays around. And he had a go at the fan. And the fan's a diehard Manchester United fan who follows his team around the world. And there's no happy ending to this. There's no apology. He just had a go at him. And he didn't deserve to be had a go at. That was Fergie just getting the wrong end of the stick and thinking, oh, he doesn't look like a Brazilian. He looks like my preconceived idea of what a a newspaper journalist should look like. So I'll have a go at that person. And he did have a go at him. And there's a few like that. Did did you
0: ever get the hairdryer? Yeah, I had a few. Any you'd want to share?
6: Yeah, I've got no problem. Warts and all and all that. I once uh, interviewed him, and he was—he was—he um, he was a bit frosty with me, right throughout. And this was like a one-hour chat at like half five in the morning, his preferred time to go to work at Carrington. And I thought, all right, it's okay, it's all right, it's going okay. And I stopped the tape at the end, and he just went ballistic at me because I'd given his autobiography a less than glowing review, and he's like. What do you know about books? And i like, well, I've written several. So I, I do know about books. What do I... But anyway, he didn't give me a chance to even reply to that. He just bang, 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 like verbally. Bang, 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 bang. Anyway, son, do you want a picture? So I felt like he just put me on the ropes. He was completely in control. So that's alluding to what the the other lads are saying. And then he brought the situation back where he was again in control. Great to see you. Do you want a picture? And I sort of took a pitch with the camera shaking and, and went home thinking, what have I just been hit with? And it's just his way of control. It's like, he's saying, look, I'm watching everything that you're doing. I'm a, uh, I am don't have to agree with everything that you're doing. And that's just, just his way of doing so. At other times, I mean, he was one of the very first interviews I did as a young journalist. And I look back with massive regret because... He was generous with his time, and I told him I had to go because my mates were waiting for me. And I looked back at the interview, and it was absolutely terrible. And I turned up with one of my mates because I thought that you could just turn up with one of your mates. And uh, I did. I, you know, was a kid, I didn't know. But at other times, he'd tell me stuff off the record, and I didn't really know what that meant. And we'd be interviewing, and he'd just say, off the record, we got good money for him, we didn't deserve that. He was no way worth that. And I thought, wow, I can't believe you're telling me this. And I, I didn't do anything with that. But maybe that was just his way of, of testing you out to to trust you. And, of course, when you do journalism, you learn that someone says something off the record. It stays that way. And, and, and he wasn't talking about Eric Cantona, by the way. But he was always in Who, control. Who was he talking about? I don't think it's fair to say, because even though it was set off the record in, <laughs> in September 1996, because you can you work should it probably out, though. should probably stay <laughs> off the record. It was September 96, was it? Okay, that's interesting.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. All right, Andy, I think uh, think that's a good place to leave this section. Adam, it's been brilliant to have you on Talk of the Devils and we'll get you on in the new year as well. You write a lot about Manchester United. I'm sure the fans have loved hearing from you, so thank you very much.
3: Pleasure. Merry Christmas, guys.
0: Okay, help me finish this line. Then you'll never win anything with, yeah, you know it, don't you? By now, the funny thing about it is, it's sort of true for most people, but not where Sir Alex Ferguson is concerned. I'm delighted to say the Athletic senior football writer Oli Kay has taken a look at Fergie's uncanny knack for finding diamonds in the rough, and he joins us now as well. Oli, welcome to Talk of the Devils. Thank you. Very much. Is it a case of finding diamonds in the rough, or is it a case of him polishing those diamonds?
4: Yeah, uh, certainly a, a lot of polishing as well. But he he, he basically, I mean, you know, people will Im- immediately say the class of 92 and, and, and that group of players he had at Manchester United, who were, you know, a brilliantly talented group, not just sort of Ryan Giggs, Paul Skulls, David Beckham, the Nevilles, Nicky Butt, but even some like, you know, Ben Thornley and John O'Kane, who didn't really make the grade, Chris Casper. It was a really, really, really talented group. And a lot of the polishing you know, was done by Eric Harrison and Brian Kidd. Um, but that was all part of a, a sustained ethos that, that Ferguson had from almost from the moment he started at Manchester United, um, that he wanted to do what he'd done at Aberdeen and, and, and sit mirroring and, and, and build the club, build the youth structure, eventually build around young players. And that's what he did. And, and his, his, you know, he, he was basically the sort of, you know, uh, the final part. Of that. He he was involved in channeling channeling the quality they had, the character they had, in, into first team players, making them, you know, integrating them in, in that first team, which he did brilliantly. But it was all, you know, all, all the work that happened before that under Eric Harrison has also reflected his his belief in the importance of of young players and the, and the need to develop them as part of a successful team.
0: Yeah, we'll talk more in a minute about the decision around integrating the class of 92 and, of course, the high-profile players that were sold that summer as well. But but fundamentally, Ollie why did he have so much faith in youth? Why why did he really want them to form a part of all of his sides, it seemed?
4: Yeah, and, and it, I mean, that is the important thing, that it's that it's all of his, his sides. I mean, I, I dug deep into his time at St Mirren and, and Aberdeen and, you know, people... I think people know, you know, people south of the border know that he, he did brilliantly with Aberdeen and won league titles and, and won the European Cup his Cup, beating Real Madrid. I hadn't realised how young that team was. Um, Jim Layton in goal was 24, Alex McLeish 24, Neil Simpson and Neil Cooper in midfield, central midfield 21 and 19 respectively. Eric Black 19, John Hewitt who came off the bench to score the winner 20, so that was a really really young team. And that was basically, you know, that was that was the way he built, that was the way he believed in building and he wanted to do the same at United and um, he inherited an old team, you know, an old, kind of injury-prone, unfit drinking team, basically, at, at United and um, moved a lot of those players on quite quickly with the, with the hope of establishing young, homegrown talent in the team and there was the, people remember, the, the Fergie fledglings of the late 80s um, which had people like Mark Robbins, Russell Beardsmore, Lee Martin, Lee Sharp, um others briefly as well, but that they didn't have that sustained success. But I think always when he from the moment he he'd really got himself comfortable there and, and stable and, and secure in his position when he won that first league title, I think he wanted to be able to integrate a really homegrown team, which is obviously what he did. And of course it helps when you've got players of the talent of Giggs, Beckham Skulls, the Neville's but etc. But yeah, yes, it was an exceptionally talented group, but I think most people would look at some of the players, you know, Nicky Burt, the Nevels, and say that, you know, he got absolutely everything out of those players. And they, they importantly, got everything out of themselves as well. And that, again, is the Ferguson ethos sort of in full effect, really. It's, it's you know, getting every last bit out of your talent, working together as a team. And, you know, there have clearly been more talented individuals than than the Neville brothers and the Nicky the but and, and even David Beckham who have not had a fraction of the success that they've they've had and it was it was about making every player more than the sum of his individual abilities making the team much much stronger than the some of its parts
0: yeah laterly, uh, latterly sorry we, we definitely saw that from the Manchester United sides that the last couple that, that won Premier League titles were, yeah, were nowhere yeah. near. The, the, the best teams that, that Ferguson had built, yet still managed to get their hands on the Premier League trophy. You mentioned Nicky Butt there, Ollie Let's hear from him now then. This is him talking about the way that Sir Alex showed faith in the younger players. I first seen all that when I was on holiday with, I was on holiday with some of my mates in, in Cyprus. <laughs> in these big superstars
7: leaving, you're thinking, oh God, they've gone and now more superstars are coming in and feeling a bit sorry for yourself when you get back to prison training you get given the number eight shirt and Gary never gets given the number two shirt instead of Port Parker and so on and so on. Yeah. So it's a bit of a wow, he's he's got faith in us and that and that was it, but genius really he spotted us at an early age and got to know us and our parents at the age of 12, 13 sport knew about what was going on school, knew about what was going on in Manchester boys playing through county teams and it's amazing you think back It's not um storytelling, it's, it's facts, you know, you go to your school, you come to your house, you know your parents' names, and that was like at, you know, 12, 13 years of age. And, well, whether he had a vision or not, I'm not sure, because I don't know if you can tell people they're you know, for Man United for that longer time, but he, he, he definitely engaged with the young players and, and hoped to get them to run through brick walls for him, and I think that's what he achieved. And I think football's changing that dynamic, it's difficult now to, to behave, and and. and uh, and put yourself out there like Sir Alex did, but it, you, you get that level of trust for the player when you build it over the years, I and mean, when you come in, you do what he did. And you know, from what he did for all of us as young boys, we you know, we would have done anything for him, and still would.
0: I'm sure older Manchester United fans know all about the summer of 1995. Any younger ones or any older ones that need a reminder, basically, Sir Alex Ferguson decided to sell three of the most experienced senior footballers in the squad in Paul Ince, Mark Hughes and Andre Kinchelskis and push forward this group of young players who we'd seen in glimpses at that point but certainly they weren't really established as as true first-team footballers in Nicky Butt, David Beckham, Paul Scholes and the Neville brothers as well. Andy, as a fan at that point, what on earth did you think?
6: There was a game at Port Vale in the autumn of 94 when alex ferguson put out a very young team featuring several of those names that you've mentioned and the local mp for stoke-on-trent north burslem she complained that her constituents hadn't paid good money to be watching these nobodies and fergie quite <laughs> rightly dismissed it united won the game 2-0 some guy who never made it called paul Scholes was like absolutely outstanding and then fast forward to august of of 95 villa away so it was the first game of the season all the fans were buzzing everyone met in Henry's in Birmingham City Centre everyone was thinking where can United go from here and what on earth has he been doing so that summer as you said he'd sold three of the star players imagine if Twitter existed then imagine if social media existed then it would be an absolute mess it would be like selling now You know, Bruno Fernandes I've got to think here because this team doesn't actually win anything to sort of get to the same level but he took out three absolute heroes Paul Ince was a brilliant player for Manchester United people might mock him now he was a fantastic footballer and he got hammered for it even by the Manchester Evening News and he blew a top at that because they'd run a, a survey asking well, was this the right thing to do and Fergie's like how dare you question my authority and a local newspaper's absolutely entitled to question the authority of the club that they report on but everyone was against him it was a very brave lonely decision and he did that several times in his career he went completely against the the general sway of fan sentiment and he was right and all the fans were wrong and I know fans who went to his house that summer and turned up and and he he he, and went to the players' houses went to Paul Ince's house you know you don't need to leave you know we all know Fergie's wrong here but Fergie might rightly argue that he wasn't wrong because the following May, Manchester United won the double-double. So lonely, brave decisions, but he was seeing those players on a daily basis. He was far closer to them and to their nuances and their personalities as well as their the, the, the talents as footballers. And he knew what he was doing. And again, he showed the foresight that we'd spoken about earlier on in the podcast. But I learned a few lessons over the years as a United fan and also as someone who who writes about it, never say anything for definite. Never write off people. We started United We Stand and we had an article in the very first issue, Ferguson Out, and I deliberated long and hard, should we put a question mark at the end of that? And when I see people making very definitive comments now, I think, you don't know for certain, nobody knows for certain.
0: No, to show you how important those players were for Manchester United, two of those departures, Mark Hughes and Paul Lynch, ruined my wallpaper at the time because they were two of the four players that were printed in a diamond design right across my room. So, yeah, I remember that fondly actually, being really disappointed as a little kid that the wallpaper was no good anymore. Uh, Ollie, in terms of these decisions, a key word that Andy mentioned there was lonely. Um, because it really did feel like they were his decisions. Did you get the sense that it was all Ferguson or was he using the experience and know-how around him to make these huge, huge calls?
4: Well, he'd, he'd, he'd sort of slightly begun to fall out with Paul that, that That relationship had been a very good one, but he, he had this sort of uneasy relationship with Paul Ince, and there was, I think, an issue over a contract. And and so it, it was it was... Not necessarily a position made from a position of total trust and total confidence in the player. I think I think that was that was a part of it. Kanchelskis, there'd been a, you know there'd been murmurs about his agents trying to get him moves to Italy and and so on. In the end, he went to Everton uh, rather than Italy. But it, it's it was basically it was it was yes there were different circumstances and obviously Mark, Mark Hughes was the only one of the three who was was an older player. I think Ince was. 27, and kachelski's 26, so it's it's getting rid of people as they are, you know, in terms of those two, it's getting rid of them as they were, in theory, approaching their peak. Mark Hughes went to Chelsea and had a brilliant couple of years there. So, it's... They, they were controversial decisions, they were really unpopular decisions, and, and, and as as you say, and as Alan Hansen famously said, people looked at it in disbelief, when they lost, you know, just the, the team cheat on, on the first day that season, I People knew about those players. They'd been talked about since winning the Youth Cup three years ago. They played for England under twenty ones. Gary Neville had played for England, I think. Maybe, um, maybe by then, I think. But the 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 others, they'd had games. You know, often in Europe because of the full foreigner rule. They'd not played an awful lot of football, any of them. And it was it was just seen as as a really kind of wacky, wild thing to do. I think because. You know, In those days, there was no sort of transfer window system. It was just imagined, perhaps, that they would get two or three weeks to try and prove themselves while he was looking for reinforcements. But, no, he, he stuck with that team absolutely throughout. And they, you know, the, the four or five of them over the course of that season were were magnificent. And and, and you know, Nicky Butt is often the forgotten member of, of, of that sort of group because he, I think, was he the first to go? I can't remember. But he, he was... Well, Beckham, Beckham was the first to go, but nobody forgets Beckham. But um, but Nick, Nicky Butt was, was you know, massive in those few seasons, first few seasons. He was a really important player in, in filling that void. And it was a big void, personality-wise and player-wise, left by Paul Ince.
0: Yeah, and this was by no means the only time that Sir Alex made this sort of decision either. Fast forward... Well, you mentioned David Beckham as an example. Yap, Stan, we talked about earlier on in the podcast as well. But Rude Van Nistelrooy in the summer of 2006 as well. A huge call. One of the deadliest finishers in Europe. One of the best players in the Premier League at the time. And Nicky Butt, again, we can hear from him speaking about the mood inside the dressing room when they heard that Rude Van Nistelrooy was to be moved on by Manchester United. You don't think much. You just, you just
7: trust the process. You know, it's happened to unbelievable players before Rude. Unbelievable players for any of them, really. This is, it just went on from when he first came in and Paul McGraw, we got moved on, Norman Weiss, I got moved on, and then it was Paul Lintz and Mark Hughes, and every single one of them are superstars. And everyone, oh, there's always someone to replace you, and you just see that these players are leaving, and you knew that there was someone coming in and someone's getting his place. Because, mind you, would never, I think you only mentioned Yapstan was the only one mm-hmm. great at doing. That's not bad for 20 years, one, one person we be better at do doing, so he, you know, he knew exactly what he was doing with the players. Time to move on.
0: Yeah, surprising that he ever admitted regretting to selling Yapstam, to be honest. I thought he would have kept that to himself. Laurie, you were a bit older at this point, so I can can bring you in now. We we (laughs) were children, weren't we, when 1995 and the class of 92 kicked off. But I remember Ruud van Nistelrooy going and this onus of the faith being put in Wayne Rooney and Cristiano Ronaldo to lead Manchester United forward. And again, another great call, another defining call as well.
5: I do remember ninety five, ninety six. I'm just going to say because it was the grey kits that we were talking about early with Gail Stevenson and Beckham scores that goal on either three one, and you sort of thinking actually, is there something there? But the Alan Hansen thing that that night when it matched the day sticks in the mind. You
0: were still up at that point, were
5: you? I was allowed, Watching yeah. Match of the day, cheeky. I know. How old were you? Uh, I think it was a ten, <laughs> no nine, something like that. Yeah, my mum and dad I'd be in bed mate, so yeah. <laughs> Obviously liberal liberal parents, I suppose, but um <laughs> says a lot about how I live my life now, I guess. Um They but no when, when, when Nicky was talking about yeah, Rudon going, you know, it, the the way you, it, it seemed, he seemed like it, you know it wasn't like a big deal really, you know, from his point of view, it didn't seem like, yeah, okay, maybe it was at the time and he's kind of, in hindsight, it, it's become more of a, yeah, well, obviously you do that for one of the greatest players ever in Cristiano Ronaldo, but I genuinely felt that he was saying, we just, we'd just we seen it so many times with Sir Alex before that he'd made these calls, that we trusted it and I guess you could see the way that the team was shaping, there'd obviously been some disruption with Rude and with with Cristiano about, you know, how they were going to play and there'd been a bit of a fallout, hadn't there, but, um, but he, I think they just knew that Sir Alex, you know, would obviously make those tough calls with the benefit of the team in mind. Um, it was actually quite funny on a, a separate piece. Nicky Butt was the guy that came off for Cristiano Ronaldo on his debut against Bolton Wanderers, and he's there. He's, he's there, sort of thinking, "I'm coming off for this kid. He'll never amount to anything." And obviously, you know, he can he can say that with a smile nowadays. But um, now I think he was, you know, I think that they just spoke to it because Nicky Butt saw it all the way through from. You know, being in, in the academy, having that tough upbringing from Eric Harrison where, you know, let's not mince our words, it was brutal at times. I think what they sort of had to go through and the, the way that they were treated by some of the senior players, you know, Peter Schmeichel telling them to go get balls, as you know, be like a kind of a ball boy almost. Um, and it wasn't a kind of, you're, you're in our first team dressing room welcoming with open arms. It was a, a tough sort of environment to go into, but they obviously proved themselves throughout that. And then they could pass that down. And having that spine throughout Ferguson's whole time at United with, obviously Paul Scholes and Ryan Giggs being the ones and Gary Neville that sort of sustained throughout it all, he was able to have those as reference points for any players that came in. So Ronaldo himself, you know, gigs, Skulls, but, you know, kicked him in training and they told him in the dressing room, are you any chance are you tracking back? You know, that kind of stuff. So they but they could say that because they've been through it themselves. So that was such a key pillar I think of Ferguson's management.
0: A last word on this, Ollie. really. Do you think his focus on youth and and promoting players was a little bit about loyalty as well and a little bit about ensuring that he kept control of these dressing rooms and that players would give everything for him? Because there was, from the outside, always a sort of uh, assumption that he just got rid of the people who'd got too big for the boots or questioned his authority.
4: Well, I think he was. I think he was loyal in one way, but he was also very ruthless in other ways. In in a way that he'd get rid of, as we say, key players, and and that you know we've talked about the big names like Paul Ince and Kinchelskis and, and um you know Vanisloy et cetera. But he, he got rid of you know he got rid of Mickey Butt when when you know he, he kind of. Marginalised Nicky, but Phil Neville, when when I mean, you'd say you'd say he was doing for the good of their careers, but he didn't. He wasn't sentimental about them. He, he was he was he was quite ruthless in the way that he decided. Let's move on from them. I think he. I think what he just really um, appreciated and um, understood probably better than any manager there's ever been was just the power of you know human nature. The the, the power of the sort of Unity that that came from from that having that core of players who'd grown up together and players who understood, you know, the Manchester United way and and just his his feeling you know, just reading through some of his books and and, and he, particularly the the recent one leading which is more of a sort of management business business management type um, uh, manual rather than a football um, autobiography but he talks about the importance of that sort of succession planning and the importance of having youth and energy and and people in the people in the building in any building that get it so much and are so fundamentally committed to it so you, you might have other players who would come and go Ronaldo was only there for six years you know John O'Shea for example was there before him and was there after him and he always felt that that you know as long as I've got these people in the dressing room yes there probably was a bit of kind of Self governance within the within the dressing room as well, because these people understood what exactly what Ferguson wanted. But there was also, you know, that sort of identity on the pitch, and you would look at the United team, and there would always be at least three, four, five players who would come through that system, who knew precisely what it took. And and it's uh, yeah, it's even like bless Tom Cleverley, who was in the final title-winning team. Wouldn't wouldn't go down as a you know United great by any means, but people like Cleverley and Welbeck and the De Silva twins who who were there as young players and Ferguson just loved building around youth and and left a team which he was convinced was just was only going to get better.
0: Ollie, it's been brilliant to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on your article, your take on Sir Alex Ferguson is up on the Athletic at the minute. Just before you go though, very quickly, I asked Andy this before. Um, did you ever get the hairdryer?
4: Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I thought you might. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Any stories you'd want to share?
4: Um, I mean, it, it, it was always over quite quickly. It was, it was always like, you know, you'd be on the front row of a press conference and he'd and just scream at you and yell at you, and, and you just kind of. Um, <laughs> and, you know, people say the hairdryer, and it, it did feel like just hot air blasting at you. Um, just like one of those sort of 10 second hand dryers or, or whatever. But um, it, it's it's yeah it was it was in yeah I, i've I've seen some people get it worse than I ever did but I've also what I would say about him as well I also was subjected to some of these sort of uh, his put downs where you know you'd be in a press conference and you'd ask a question perfectly legitimate question but one that perhaps you didn't see coming or perhaps you didn't want to be asked and he just humiliate you really. Because he didn't want to be asked that question. I remember asking one question about, you know, his his tactics, his formation in a certain game, and he said, Well, I could tell you but I wouldn't want to blunt your imagination. Um, which was um <laughs> which was quite a good put down. I think it's a line I've used myself. Yeah. Since so it's um yeah, he, he, he knew how to um he knew how to make you feel that big and I'm sure he did that with players as well, and certainly with referees
0: yep no doubt at all Ali thank you for coming on brilliant to have you with us thank you Now, finally, here's something us mere mortals can relate to. A nice glass of red after the match, except, as Nick Miller discovered in researching his article, the wine enjoyed in Fergie's office at Old Trafford was often bordering on the divine. Visiting managers sought to impress the great man as well. And Nick joins us now. Nick, thank you for doing this. Of course, your article um, on on mind games and Merlot is on The Athletic at the minute. People can go and check that out. Um, I bet you enjoyed writing this. I enjoyed reading it, certainly.
8: Yeah, it was good fun. Anything to uh, that, that I can contribute without having to have serious opinions about football is excellent. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, see, I, I see. I seem to have been. I don't I think? Don't think it's changed in my contract just yet. But I seem to have been appointed the Athletics Manchester United Wine Correspondent because I've got another article about Ed Woodward's uh, line of wine um, that's out at the moment. So you know, hope he's hoping for a few more that more of those in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, cheers to that. Let's talk about uh, Ferguson and wine then. I, ha- I have to admit at this point that I did let out a smile when you wrote about lazy journalists asking about getting Ferguson uh, wine after matches because I- I'm pretty sure I was guilty of that at least a couple of times uh, down the years. But um, it was a huge thing, wasn't it? What-, what bottle are you getting Fergie for the match? It-, it became almost a stock question to ask any manager facing Ferguson for the first time. Such was his love of wine.
8: Yeah, I don't know about uh, the the lazy maybe not lazy chinless, but it was just I I was just kind of reacting to that from the 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 sigh that everyone I spoke to. I kind of went in went into it by saying, "Oh, I want to talk about you know what it was like to manage Fergie," and then I'd go into the wine question, and there'd be this kind of, a, oh, "Okay, this again." Um, but yeah, it, for for a little while, it seemed like it there was this kind of super obsequious thing that you know any opposition manager, particularly managers of a sort of smaller team would it would be this kind of competition to see who could get who could impress the coolest boy in the class with the nicest bottle of wine um but uh I, you know as as I was writing this I came to think of it as it, the wine obviously got the the attention but it was more about what the what they talked about whilst drinking the wine and the relationships that um Fergie and you know obviously the other managers um could develop over those things and you know you you're not going to get fergie wasn't going to send you a um you know hot young thing on loan if you were you know i don't know a championship manager or something because you bought him a nice bottle of wine but it's not gonna hurt
0: no absolutely what was your favorite story that you unveiled then
8: well my, my it's cheating slightly um my favorite story probably was um it was one that had been uh, sort of knocking around for a little while about. There were a couple of ones to do with Sam Allardyce. One where Fergie, um, the, the practical joker Fergie, which I'm not sure uh, is a one I was, not a side of him I was hugely familiar with. But um, he. First time
0: uh, it's been mentioned on the podcast, to be fair.
8: Well, there you jokes, go. So that's perfect. Um, yeah. Here, the, the, Sam Allardyce bought him a very nice bottle of wine, and Fergie swapped it for Ribena, and you know hilarity ensued. But there was another one where um, Allardyce bought him a, a a very nice bottle to commemorate some anniversary or something like that, and he left it out to um to you know get a bit of air and to breathe, and some over over efficient cleaning people just saw this kind of dusty bottle of open wine and tipped it down the sink um so they uh, had to settle for the the sort of six quid bottle of house red that um you know that West Ham served up at that time
0: that's absolutely painful I can sort of cringe just thinking about doing it uh, Andy ever shared a bottle of red with Alex Ferguson
6: no would you have wanted to yeah, but I know absolutely nothing about wine. I'd love to hit you with a fantastic anecdote of wine, you know, <laughs> watching Manchester United pre-season, But I've got to be honest, no.
0: A cup of tea, maybe at some point. Uh, Nick, this isn't just superficial with Sir Alex either, is it? He's almost a student of wine, it seems, uh, judging by your article.
8: Yeah, I mean, he kind of he got into it. I think it was about sort of '97 around that time, where his wife basically told him to get some other interests beyond football and uh, you know horse racing was one of those and wine was another so he kind of really started to um, gen up on it and he he viewed it as a I think I wrote in the piece that he kind of found the, the somehow managed to find the competitive side of wine because he started viewing it as a, as like a, um, a, a not quite not just buying a nice bottle to you know have over dinner or with a opposition manager after a game but as investments uh, there was a quote I think it was from his one of his autobiographies where he said I started buying the recommendations from various experts he'd spoken to but they weren't making any money so he just started going in for the really bit really big stuff um so yeah he it, it, uh, w- one of the things that i kind of thought about while i was writing this piece is how he how he kind of had the time for any of this stuff to become uh, an expert in, a uh, sort of semi-expert in, you know, the fine red wines of, of Europe and beyond. And he also, I think he also did he teach himself French and the piano and uh, was apparently a, a, a know-it-all in terms of, like, you know, historical, uh, bio- uh, you know, biographies and all this kind of thing.
0: Very good at quizzes. Yeah, br- brilliant at quizzes. Us, yeah.
8: At the same time as kind of, you know, running the, the the biggest club in the in the world, which I, I you know I I can barely find time to sort of do the hooverings never mind the, do all this. So it's, it's just astonishing how he kind of he found the time to do all of this stuff.
0: Yeah, you said before it was almost like a rite of passage, buying a decent bottle of wine for Sir Alex Ferguson, and one of the managers who actually benefited from Fergie's hospitality was the then Schalke manager. Uh, in 2011, a certain Ralph Rangnick, of course, and following a heavy defeat in the Champions League semi-final, they did enjoy a glass of red together, unlike Andy and Sir Alex.
4: Yes, we spoke after the second leg here. He, he invited me into his office at Old Trafford in the stadium. Uh, he enjoyed the glass of wine more than I did because we had no chance whatsoever in that game. However, we we missed out four, four or five uh, important first 11 players at the time so uh, yeah that was the first meeting the first time I met sir Alec and then we met again in 2015 uh, at an event of the Kika sports magazine uh, for the benzeman award uh, we had dinner together and I'm very much looking forward to meeting him in the next couple of weeks
8: maybe the, maybe the, the the germs of uh, of the his current appointment were were placed there maybe he impressed Fergie with a lovely bottle of red and you know, 20 years later, or however long it was, um, he's he's now one of his successors. The, uh, a, um, a lesson for us all there.
0: You sort of heard there as well, Laurie, the amount of respect that he had for Sir Alex Ferguson. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's, who's sort of forged a brilliant career in coaching and, and as a football exec as well in his own right. But to hear him speak about Sir Alex, there's a certain quality in his voice, isn't there?
5: Yeah, I think that's the... That's the point that so Alex Ferguson was a great British manager. Okay, he would very he would probably say a great Scottish manager, but in terms of what he did in, in this country, um had has no parallel really. But also the way that he influenced things across the world, you know, really, you know, in, into Europe, he wasn't a closed minded manager, so obviously he had Carlos Queiroz as, as an assistant, um, who himself brought in a, a foreign fitness coach who he'd worked with at um, South Africa and, and Portugal. So there was there was very different elements to his game where it wasn't like he was, you know, solely, you know, British representative. So that clearly someone like Ralph Ranick will know all about him. And I think, yeah, it's quite touching the uh, emotion that he's got in his voice when he talks about that. And the fact that clearly now he's in this, you know, hot seat where Sir Alex reigned for so long. Um, you know, if he could replicate a small smidgen of what Ferguson did, then I think everyone would be happy.
0: Yeah, just to underline all of this finally, Nick, I mean, you said it was a, a rite of passage for managers earlier, Um but th- but this glass of wine after a game became an institution in the Premier League, and it also sort of became a way of trying to get some sort of foothold for managers in the Premier League as well. This this really was showing Sir Alex's overall influence on English football at the time.
8: Yeah, and it it's just uh, I can uh, I I'd, I'd sort of maybe started this from a um position of slightly mocking the the managers involved but it was uh, it was amazing how this thing it, 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 you know obviously it's kind of spoke to his influence that he could get very kind of experienced and decorated and very well well respected managers just completely desperate to impress him in in whatever way they could uh, whether that was you know through uh, achievements with their, their teams, or you know, knowledge about something, or just buying them a a, a a lovely bottle that that would you know pass muster with with Fergie, the wine connoisseur. So yeah, I mean, it, 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 by the end of it, I um I but by the end of writing this piece, I just thought, yeah, I'd probably do the same as well. I'd be desperate to impress him as uh, as all these other managers were.
0: I'm sure we all would be, yeah. Nick, it's been brilliant to have you on Talk of the Devils. Thank you very much for coming on. And your article, of course, is up on The Athletic at the minute. A great read, if not just to learn a bit more about red wine.
8: Nice one. Cheers.
0: Okay, last but not least, Laurie will also be writing his own take on Sir Alex Ferguson. And it's Sir Alex Ferguson in 2021. We've heard snippets, haven't we, of what's happened since his retirement. Of course, his his ill health, which he's recovered from, which is brilliant to see. And also some of the, the moments that he's had across the world. Uh, still influencing things and sharing his experience and and his management style as well, which which has been, I'm sure, fascinating for people to to hear about. Uh, Laurie will be writing about it. So, Andy, what's your take on it? Um, What do you sort of make of Fergie in 2021?
6: Well, I'm pleased he's still alive because he's had serious health issues. I regularly hear from people who come across him. They talk about someone enjoying life, someone in rude health. I think he absolutely deserves that. I see examples where he sent videos to people who've maybe lost a loved one and they're almost like a lecture on how to live your life now laced with compassion. And he still goes to Manchester United matches which I think is is a good thing. I think he he handled his own succession really well. He didn't want it to be like Samat Busby where he kept an active office during the week at Old Trafford. Fergie's got an office but it's well away from the club I think he gave distance to the people who followed him and then as for his own legacy well all the trophies which he won created that and secured that you might argue whether it's him or Samat Busby who are Manchester United's greatest ever manager I don't think it matters I think they're both absolute legends and they made Manchester United the biggest club in the world which you know Manchester isn't the biggest city in the world Manchester's not London it's not It's not Paris and for so United to to do that um, is largely down to Busby but also Ferguson because he did it in a modern era and he adjusted and he developed and even though football was forever changing and at a fast pace he was also able to change as well he didn't just build one great United team he built several and that's what Busby did as well and we could speak for hours about the great things that he's done but such a character as well whether with the media whether with the fans um, we can talk about him now um, as he comes to celebrate a key birthday in his life and I just think it's wonderful that he's able to enjoy life now with his family, with his friends and still go to matches. I just feel a little bit sorry for him about some of the games that he's having to witness.
0: There is that, yeah. But That's a perfect place to leave it. You've rounded it off really nicely, Andy. So thank you, Andy, for being with us across that very special Talk of the Devils. Thank you to Laurie as well. So that's Sir Alex Ferguson. Uh, come New Year's Eve of course we'll all raise a glass to the great man happy 80th birthday Sir Alex Ferguson I hope you've all enjoyed listening to this very special edition of Talk of the Devils we've certainly enjoyed putting it together for you and talking about Fergie and we'll see you in the new year take care, bye bye
4: well now that you've done it once and finally broken that 26 year spell do you think you can form a dynasty here in much the same way Sir Matt Busby did? Well, we
1: have the platform and definitely have the resources. We have the players. And as long as they're hungry, because without hunger, you can never achieve anything. And I would be saying to my players now is, go on, the door's open for you. It's up to yourself. If you really want to do it, you can do it. And it's, I think in the modern context of football, I think it's very difficult to say that you're going to dominate football. But what I think we will do is, I think we will be there all the time now. I won't be taking my foot off the pedal, it's not my nature and I will certainly be looking for my players to lead the way for me.
2: Athletic